fellow ag nerds. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, you have found the right show, and I'm sure glad you're here. Hopefully you had a chance to listen to last week's episode with Brian Tischler, where we explored his Ag Open GPS open source project and the community that's being built over there, thousands of people around the world. If you didn't, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that one after you finish listening to today's episode. Today is another example of an open source project, but this one is a little bit different in a few different ways. Uh, first, it's quite a bit newer than Ag Open GPS, which has been around for years now, and it has that robust community that Brian has helped to develop. Secondly, it's focused on a different agricultural problem. In this case, site-specific spraying, or you know, some people might call it spot spraying or sea and spray type technology. The project is called the Open Weed Locator, or OWL for short. My two guests today are leading the efforts to develop an open source, low-cost weed detection and control device. Essentially, it's a site-specific spot spraying system that you can make yourself for around $400. Right now, it's only designed for fallow-type weed control scenarios because it sees green and sprays it, so obviously you wouldn't want that running through a growing crop per se. But I think with the open source community that they're developing, it's only a matter of time before they add artificial intelligence to identify and spray specific weeds or perhaps even some sort of non-chemical weed control like electricity or lasers even. As you heard Brian talk about last week, the opportunities with low-cost hardware in the hands of an innovative community are really incredible. As if that's not cool enough all on its own, we also highlight another project in this episode, which is Weed AI. It's basically an online repository of weed imagery in crops. And this gets back to something we've talked about numerous times on this podcast, which is we need quality data sets for companies to develop artificial intelligence. And Weed AI is doing this in sort of an open source way, which I think could have huge impacts on helping new innovations come along in a way where they have access to an open source data set like this. We talked about it just recently in our robotics roundtable. Well, I'm sorry, I got all the way into this introduction and I haven't even introduced our guests, but we have on the show today, Guy Coleman and William Salter. Guy is a PhD student at the University of Sydney in Australia and also a Fulbright Future Scholar currently based at Texas A&M University. His research focuses on the interaction between artificial intelligence for weed recognition and plant morphology in large-scale production systems. Guy also has experience in alternative weed control technologies like lasers and targeted tillage. William Salter, who you will also hear called by his nickname in today's episode, which is TAM, is a postdoctoral agricultural scientist at the University of Sydney. His research focuses on several important aspects of plant and weed science, ranging from improving crop productivity to killing weeds more effectively. William has a keen interest in developing new low-cost tools for use in scientific research and the agricultural industry. So these two guys take us through the evolution of the Open Weed Locator, or OWL, project, the importance of open source technology, not just for farmers, but also for people like them from academia as well. They'll also talk about the role weed AI can play in the future of agriculture and really quite a bit more. Uh, one more quick note. You're, you're going to hear Guy and Tam talk about raspberry pie. No, that's not P-I-E like the delicious dessert, but actually a tiny low-cost computer that is used to program Al and many other low-cost technologies around the world. 
I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where Guy Coleman is taking us back to the origins of this Open Weed Locator project. I think the, the, yeah, the beginning of our and an open source weed detector spot spraying type system uh, probably went back a couple of years to seeing a whole lot of how-to guides on how to build things like home automation systems. You kind of Google things with Raspberry Pi and, and a whole list of pretty cool projects come up, but very few of them anything to do with agriculture. So this is back around 2019, I think. And uh, this time I was also learning, still learning to code, but always learning to code, but so I was looking for things to do. And I guess I had the opportunity then to start developing something that was like an instruction for other people who weren't in agriculture to build their own agricultural device. And so I was writing this kind of how-to guide. I wrote most of it and uh, finished most of it. And then it kind of got put on the shelf a solid year. And it was only once I started revisiting it back in uh, last year, so I mid last year, I saw there was an opportunity potentially actually to make this into more of a a device, uh, like a more professional looking how-to guide. And part of it as well was using off-the-shelf components because that's like I can't build PCBs or like uh, printed circuit boards. I can't do really super complex electronics. I'm very much a bit bit of a hack, I guess, as you you might call it. And so I, I just bought things that were easily available on like Amazon or eBay. Things that were cheap that I could afford and that was kind of the, the rough design parameters at that point. So it was a $12 relay control board, like a roughly $100 Raspberry Pi and a, and a cheap camera. And so just kept on tinkering on it as a bit of a side project of using some of those computer vision skills I was trying to practice. So things like green detection, uh, simple just XG algorithms, XS green, where you just uh, muck around with the, the image channels, so the red, green, and blue channels and images. And uh, put that all together into this box and got it kind of roughly working, I think, at that point. So that was towards the end of 2020. And uh, I think I was telling my boss about it, uh, Michael Walsh. He's the director of weed research in, in Sydney. And these are a really good opportunity for it. I think something I hadn't necessarily realized was it was a low-cost, simple weed detection device for fellow situations that use cameras and image-based approaches that were coming and are becoming much more popular. And so I think it was that recognition of the impact it could have and then his uh, interest and in, I guess drive to to then see this through to the end that kind of renewed I guess my interest in, in continuing it and developing it and uh, that's the point that, that the TAM got involved since the start of this year now. TAM's been fantastic about kind of contributing in that way of getting across the line and, and bringing that kind of open source open access science perspective to it as well and that kind of brings us to the point now that we did go through a bit of a testing as well so earlier this year we're out in a few farms in southwest New South Wales so that's kind of eastern Australia uh, near just about a few hours from Sydney and the idea being we just wanted to check to make sure this thing could do as it said on the box so it could uh, detect weeds in a, a variety of fellow fellow conditions so different soil backgrounds different lighting different uh, stubble loads as well so that was where we did the testing validation and uh, then finally the uh, the writing over the past few months as well cool and William, give us your vantage point, though. So he, he kind of mentioned that he brought it to you when it was getting started, but really needed help finishing it. What stage was it in when you kind of got involved and what attracted you to the project in the first place? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, I was very lucky. Uh, at the end of last year, I was finishing up my second postdoc at Sydney. Uh, and like, I had worked on a couple of projects where we had been building low-cost tools for plant phenotyping. So uh, I guess to look at photosynthesis cheaply 
and also to measure the light under canopies uh, cheaply as well. And uh, I was lucky that, yeah, Michael had sort of already seen the value in, in the OWL project and approached me to see if I would like to be involved. And I mean, the work that Guy put in before that, he really laid the groundwork for where I picked it up. I mean, we had a workable device at that point. It was about fine tuning and uh, I guess really testing and writing things up when I joined the project. And uh, I guess I also saw, rather than just it being an open source tool, I also saw it as being an educational tool for farmers who may not have been exposed to such technologies before. I think we can probably all agree that this is where weed control is going in the future uh, with more smart weed detection systems and more targeted weed management strategies. And so, yeah, rather than just having a GitHub page, which just has the code, we really, yeah, jumped in on the educational side of things and actually made it a fully fledged, almost like just a website with instructions on how to build these things. And uh, we hope to continue that moving forward and continue to develop with the help of the, the agricultural community. Great. And Guy, was all the all the hardware here, was this all just off-the-shelf hardware that you could kind of buy and put together? Absolutely, yeah. It's all just cheap stuff you could get from your local electronics dealer uh, because that's where it was just available to me. So eBay is a, <laughs> was a great spot, but equally there's a few shops in Australia that uh, we could buy it from too. And so on the website, do you list not only the code if they want access to it, but also where to go find each piece and how to put it together? For sure, yeah. So we have a full table. So every single component, like down to the uh, individual connections, so kind of plug and play connections that this, we try to minimize the amount of soldering and specialized tools you need. And all, all those are listed there. There are links to the uh, Australian websites, but they list the part numbers and then you can obviously find them in your local area or they're just mainly suggestions just to show what the, the details are. Uh, but obviously people would potentially have their preferred retailers uh, wherever they are. Okay. Well, this is great because this is very helpful. So so we're talking kind of stage one, you are sort of scheming this and then you put together basically a prototype and then you, know, you get other people involved, including William here, who kind of helps you really hone the technology to where you want it. At what point does it become an open source project and not just a couple of guys tinkering? <laughs> um, I think, like I had the discussions, I guess, with the, uh, Michael, like the director of weed research about which way do you want to take this? Because as I'm sure you'd be aware, there's lots of people jumping on this kind of technology to, to make some money. And I think that was that kind of discussion. It's probably the end of last year where I was like, look, I really want to make this open source. Like I, I want to be able to publish it. To me, the value is in having others build it. I guess I'm at the, the point where I'm fortunate I don't have dependents or, or people that need to survive off a, a, a <laughs> more than a grad school income. So I'm privileged in that sense. But yeah, that, I guess that's the point I've made the decision. I want to make this, want to publish it, make it open source. Uh, and then that was kind of the, the start of it. And then as Tam's mentioned, it kind of developed once Tam came on to more of an educational piece and kind of expanded that open source approach. And William, talk about the educational piece. So you've got the prototype, the code is available, it's open, whoever wants it. What's the strategy or what's the approach to really, you know, making it an effective educational tool? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the main thing that will make it effective as an educational tool is uh, just getting it into the hands of 
people who need to learn about it. And so uh, we're using Twitter and LinkedIn to our advantage there. Al has truly fled the nest. It's out in the wild now. And uh, we have had some really good feedback already. That's just been a few weeks that the GitHub has been live. But we have had a large following, a lot of people interested in learning about this technology and wanting to get down to their electronics store and buy the hardware to put this piece together. Another part of the the thing that will make the educational side of it a success is the fact that it is all very low cost. However, it is customizable as well. So people can learn at their own pace. They can just follow our instructions exactly as we put them down on paper, or they can sort of customize it to their own use as well. I have never built something like this. It's really cool. I'm I'm definitely a fan more than a practitioner. But, you know, I am used to putting things out into the world for free. And it's exciting who it reaches. uh, But it can also be daunting on some of the response you get. You know, uh, in in my case with a podcast, either people wanting to come on or talk about the topics we talk on here. It's just it's a little bit difficult to keep up with all that. Like you said, if you're doing it for free. How do you all handle that? Is that part of your job, you know, in working for the university? And maybe this is a broader conversation about how do open source projects become a thriving community instead of all of the work ending up on the people who sort of started the project? Yes, it's a good question, I guess. It's something I'm probably trying to reckon with at the moment about allocating time to the projects and developing code for it. So personally, I guess it's uh, just trying to, to limit my own time I spend on it. And to me at the moment, it's about probably getting an, enough people behind it initially uh, to get it into its own kind of community. So probably the, the way I see the development or the effort curve potentially is put the effort in early, develop that community, and then hopefully it starts to uh, kick off. And what we've seen already in the last kind of week of having it open, so just on the GitHub issues page, we've had a couple of people conversing about their own experiences building it already. And so that does already take the load off Tam and I trying to build one or trying to keep up with that answering those questions. I think longer term in like the the sense of developing these open source communities, you do see examples like really fantastic examples. You might've come across AgOpen GPS and Brian Tischler from Canada and that platform or the the discourse they have there. Uh, So AgOpen GPS is all about developing uh, open source GPS driven tractors. And so people put up their experiences, people ask questions and it seems to have reached that critical mass of people where uh, obviously Brian works uh, hard in the background, but it's all those questions, all those answers, those shared experiences tend to be evenly distributed over a a larger group of people. And so that's probably what what I'd I'd be looking at as an example of a a good ag community of uh, of open source uh, development. But I'm not sure I have the the answer to develop a community so it's uh, like a manageable amount of work for everyone involved. William, anything to add to this, to the community building part? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess like what we've talked about so far is very much uh, online communities of people who are already quite tech savvy. What we'd also like to do is uh, is get the owl into the hands of community groups. And uh, had it not been for the latest COVID outbreak here in New South Wales, we had actually planned some workshops with some groups, some farmer groups in New South Wales to go through the building process of owl. Our plan was to bring some pre-3D printed parts for them to use and all the other hardware that they need to put together a basic OWL unit. And so hopefully we can continue those sorts of workshops down the track as well uh, to get it into the hands of people who 
it would probably benefit from the educational side of this project more than people who are already willing to go down to the electronic shop and are quite sort of familiar with a soldering iron. So, and let's talk about that. You know, if, if you are successful in your educational aspect of this, it's not it's not so much like world domination through OWL, but it's a different way to think about ag technology, right? So maybe talk about what you just mentioned, that these are the people you're really trying to reach because they'll benefit from the education of it. How will they benefit and how do you see that playing out, you know, for people like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, like the benefits of OWL are sort of quite a few fold. The first off is obviously just with any site-specific weed control unit, you're going to get cost savings in the long run in terms of chemical usage, and uh, you'll be more environmentally friendly as a result as well. And so, yeah, like educating the farmers about site-specific weed control will have those benefits, but it will also, I guess, open a new world to them where they can build their own equipment and fix it and customize it themselves as well and uh, that just might not have been something that they were aware of before like lots of technology uh, the vast majority of people will just go out and buy something off the shelf if it breaks they will go out and buy a new one it's probably not quite quite the same in the agricultural space growers tend to be a bit they're pretty good with their hands but with these new technologies uh, I guess we do face the problem of going that same way that you've got this black box that you stick on your sprayer and if it breaks then you're at the mercy of a company to fix it and in your opinions how attainable is it for the average you know farmer or or anybody i'm not trying to single out farmers although that's just the context that this would be in farmer agronomist person um, that works in agriculture to learn the skills to actually contribute and modify and evolve a project like owl if they're starting without, you know, those programming skills? I guess it's designed the way we wrote the instructions and the, the guides uh, were really to target so anyone could put it together. It was meant to be, you didn't need any really prior experience in electronics. You have to have a soldering iron, but you can get those fairly cheaply from your local hardware store. So it was trying to, to make it as simple as possible to put together. So mainly just about connecting wires here and there and, and keeping the diagrams straightforward. So on, on the contribution front, I think there's also the, the opportunity is not just necessarily in, in the code or the actual hardware in terms of improving that, but it's, it's in the use cases, it's, it's in the different types of algorithms we might use or what farmers actually need one of these items or like one of these devices to, to actually do. So I guess a good example of that, I was speaking to a farmer up in Dirrambandi, so southern Queensland, I think, uh, just a few hours north of the border with New South Wales in Australia and he was interested in using it for his cotton and uh, I guess that was uh, like a use case in terms of adding GPS speed control or uh, these other dynamic delay control that we hadn't yet implemented but by speaking with that guy about what he had existing on the vehicles or the, the implements and the equipment he had found a much easier way of developing these dynamic speed control algorithms where you can just take the GPS data and speed data straight off the tractor that already has GPS there. So I guess that's why well, that's fairly obvious and first step. It's a great example, I guess, of how we can speak with growers or have people use these and, and contribute in not necessarily just the software and, and the hardware sense, but the use case or the, the contextual information about how these devices can be deployed more effectively. And in its current form, 
what is the total cost of the parts of the hardware? If someone was going to assemble one themselves, what are they going to pay just in parts to get it built? Correct me if I'm wrong, Tam, but I, I think it was it's about hundred odd dollars in Australian dollars. Uh, but it was a hundred odd dollars for the hundred twenty dollars for the Raspberry Pi four. Then I think we the camera is roughly ninety nine a hundred. The other major part is the uh, relay control board, which is about twelve. And I think um, a few of the connectors are fairly pricey. Uh, just the ones we chose because they're weatherproof. I think they're about twenty to thirty dollars. I think bringing it all together, you end up with about a four hundred dollar unit. So it's considerably cheaper, low cost, I guess. You know, cheaper than a really basic drone. I mean, really. Very, very cool. Well, let's continue on with Al specifically. I love that example with cotton that, you know, they could find use cases. And then, you know, you've got the community that's talking back and forth and saying, well, if we could just get it to do this, then I could use it in this other use case. And somebody else I could envision saying, oh, yeah, well, we can do that, you know, a really easy way. And sort of that's how these things get developed. My understanding is if you wanted to, you know, you could take Owl, let's say guy you wanted to after your time in, in the US here and commercialize it, you know, and sell a product using this open source technology. It'd still be every bit as open source and available and you don't have to, you know, make the community mad. You just kind of offer it for people who, you know, they want the sales and support and service and all that stuff. You could essentially do that and it would all still be open source. Is that right? That's correct. So the, the licensing is always a big part of open source and probably one potentially misconception with open source is that open source is always free. So like, well, in this case it is, like you can go up there and you can get all the code and all that for free. It doesn't necessarily always have to be. It's just about the accessibility of it and you'd be able to see behind, behind the scenes. Obviously, again, license dependent. But the selling kits or that's all an opportunity down the future to make that process easier for people to do. And people can build off of Owl as well. Uh, the license requires people to make sure they show where it's come from and uh, make sure that uh, I guess sharing that as what they've used, I guess, as well. Well, you can see the license specifics on the, on the GitHub. So that's the great opportunity of open source is that people can see how it's developed. And often, yeah, as you've mentioned, the difficult part is sometimes putting these things together and actually having the time to. So while you're sharing all your secrets in that sense, you can focus on delivering good service, delivering a good product, uh, and then commercializing it that way and helping out people who might not have the time or want that extra support and helping those people out as well. Well, I, I have a feeling I'm going to run out of clock because I have a ton of questions here, but I'll come back to something later. But for right now, I want to ask about, you know, William, it sounds like where your work might come in as well is if you wanted to go beyond just green, brown, you know, sea green, spray it. You could do that. Let's say you wanted an algorithm that trained it to only spray Palmer amaranth, right? You need to train, I guess, an algorithm to be able to spot Palmer amaranth. Is that a software problem more than it is a hardware problem? I imagine you've got the the computer vision hardware that you could buy off the shelf, I would imagine. Is it more of a software issue? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, like the hardware of Owl could conceivably run algorithms such as that at the moment. However, it's the training of those algorithms that's a big bottleneck, but that's certainly an area that our group is working hard in as well. It involves humans telling the computer what is a Palmer amaranth weed and what isn't, and that is quite time-consuming. And uh, like one of the ways we're getting around that, and uh, Guy can speak more about it, is the Weed AI platform 
which is another open source tool specifically designed around training these machine learning algorithms to better detect and identify weeds in field. And so talk about that guy, if you don't mind, because my sense is, I don't know this, that basically it's it's almost like crowdsource images of weeds so that you can have enough images to train an algorithm to know when it's seeing that particular weed. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's pretty close to what we're doing. It goes back to the, the difficulty of uh, capturing weeds in all the diversity of appearances and uh, lighting conditions, soil backgrounds. It's a real difficult part of that uh, detection process. And what we saw was this massive bottleneck, as Tam mentioned, was that, that slow process of annotation of, of telling the computer what the weed is uh, or, or what the crop is. And by, as you mentioned, crowdsourcing that or encouraging others to open source their own data sets, it not only lets people like the maker community or the open source community try and develop their own algorithms for their own problems say, in their own fields, but it, it gives us this opportunity to start designing algorithm architectures so the way these algorithms put together, so different like structures and different functions coming together, the way you organize all that in like a, a recipe, I guess, is enabled by having this this large data set of images. So I guess going back to other industries, so if you look at uh, like object detection, so things like your, your mug or your, your computer, cars, people, those large data sets were developed in late 2000, so 2009, uh, 2010, uh, professors from uh, Stanford, so I think Fei Fei Li uh, was pretty visionary in this and developed this large data set called ImageNet, which scraped the internet of all these images. And it kind of filled this, this gap in these uh, new algorithms called deep learning algorithms that were so hungry for data, but they could outperform uh, what the algorithms had previously worked on these data sets. And we're trying to do that, I guess, with weeds. So the uh, current algorithm architectures are all based on these large open source data sets for everything except weeds. But if, if we can get these large data sets of weeds together, then uh, we can potentially start developing architectures that are specific to weeds and then might actually do better and uh, start exploring these more research computer science questions that weren't previously possible with the data that was available. So probably that, that two-pronged approach, it, it's about getting people to start contributing and finding weeds in the whole variety of scenarios they often present and also about opening up these new architecture research development questions as well. Mm -hmm. And so the reason you can't just you know scrape the internet for all images of weeds, is it an image quality issue? There just aren't enough quality images out there to do it similar to the way you, you mentioned they did it with other objects? Yeah, it's just that there's not that Num like well, firstly the quality. So there's very few images of each instance of, of weeds or each species. Then you've also got the uh, impacts of growth stage and how the, the weed might look, say, in a cotton crop or like a corn or, or a bean crop like soybeans. So it might grow differently to, say, your, your cotton crop because the row widths might be different, the background textures might be different, the nutrient applications, the herbicide applications are all going to change. And just scraping the internet for that just doesn't, unfortunately, seem to provide that data or the level of of annotation quality you need. And then there's image quality too. Like there are weed or crop photos out there, but they might be from, from a distance, unknown distance, unknown angle that might not sort of have the right resolution to really see the weeds in there so you can accurately identify them, even being a human, um, let alone a, a machine. So that's probably the, the tricky part of that. Uh, whereas if we target it, we target a species and part of weed AI is about standardizing metadata so we can report things like soil texture, color, background conditions, lighting, angle, camera type, 
then people can start to answer questions and, and probably develop new questions as well based on that metadata and, and fill in the gaps in their models where it might not be performing. And what are the forces working against this? Like this just seems so much better for everybody to have an open data set of things like weeds, uh, but also, you know, other things as well. I'm thinking pests, diseases, crops even, to have like an open data set that everybody can use to develop technology around. The one obvious force working against it is a private company wants to keep this as their intellectual property to make money off of. But are there other forces as well that work against sort of this shared data set so that we can use it for technology? Yeah, I mean, uh, as I said, the image set is a bottleneck, but uh, in terms of actually obtaining the images, but labeling the images correctly uh, so that we can train the algorithm with those images is, I guess, the largest bottleneck because we have to show people how to do that. But, I mean, that is something that we are working on. And uh, just in the past couple of weeks, Guy has been running some online workshops uh, showing uh, interested parties how they can label their images and get them into a format that works. So with all the correct metadata on the lighting, crop type, location data, uh, all that stuff is is there and correct when it is uploaded to Weed AI so that, I mean, we do have a review process, but it keeps that review process fairly short if the users already know how the system works and what we expect when a data set is uploaded to WDAI. Well, how do you continue to incentivize people to contribute, to get them excited? And this gets a little bit back to the community building aspect, but just in general, you know, what have you found turns a light bulb on and what type of person's interested and what gets them excited about this project? Uh, so... I think that the type of people interested are often those, uh, initially at least, so this iteration uh, is the people that probably have some interest in electronics at the moment and uh, those that are also looking for site-specific weed control because it's agriculture, they're interested in new technology and they want to try something that's, that's already out there. And uh, I think to encourage people to contribute and to, and to keep giving, I guess, to this uh, open source initiative, probably the, the best thing that I've found personally about this industry is that you can see your results of your coding or your development in a field setting the next day or or you can see someone else using it. And I think that's really rewarding because you can see how it will benefit the grower, it benefits the crop, and if you're reducing inputs, then there's a whole range of downstream benefits in the environment too. Mm-hmm. So you can see your input being effective on the ground, in the field, and with people that are, are really going to appreciate the input too. So. Well, of course, all open source projects are fantastic, but you can see, if, say, if you contributed to TensorFlow, like a very small part of TensorFlow somewhere, sure, people are going to appreciate it, but it's difficult, I guess, to see potentially the impact it has in the field. Uh, whereas here, it's, I guess, we're hoping that that's really on the ground impact, uh, having farmers use it and seeing the results of your work in real life will bring people in. Yeah, uh, I guess going one step further than that, we hope that people who decide to build an owl as it is at the moment benefit hugely from it and uh, they feel happy with their success at building it as we've seen it but what we really want to see is people taking it that step further and using what they've learned in the process of building our owl unit and using it to say develop new algorithms that work on their farm where others may not and adding them back into our github page uh, so that we can share those algorithms with other people in the community as well. 
And like that's something we really want to do is, is share the success of OWL with everyone else. And hopefully those success stories will inspire other people to take it on as well. Maybe for the last few minutes, let's kind of take it big picture here and, and look out forward. You know, what do you see for the future of, of open source ag tech? Certainly, you know, there's a lot to be excited about in technology in general, especially as the cost of some of the hardware go down and, and maybe we get something like Weed AI that has these databases of, of images that can be helpful. To me, it would seem logical that we'll see more and more of these open source type projects. But uh, talk to me about how you see it playing out and how you see the world looking differently uh, when it comes to open source ag tech. I guess I'll, I'll approach it from a scientific perspective. Um, I just see everything going more open, publishing. We've got more and more citizen science projects where we're getting people who historically wouldn't have had access to scientific education being involved in science. And uh, I think, yeah, open source ag projects uh, do that for agriculture. And uh, yeah, they expose growers who may not have had access to scientific practice or technological tools such as this in the past. And uh, yeah, look, get them in on the ground level and teach them whilst also providing them a tool that will benefit them in the long term. And so, yeah, look, I, I hope to see more and more projects like this in the future. Yeah, I think uh, for me, probably on for, from the, the tech, I mean, the industry perspective, it's the, the big picture for these type of things. I think we will see yeah, more open source projects and hopefully contributing to more interoperable or better standards that enable like a communication and sharing across either different industries, different manufacturers, and uh, by making everything open source and, and viewable, people can start to, uh, I guess, see the connections or relationships between different technologies that might not necessarily have been visible previously because it's all closed up behind, uh, behind closed doors. And uh, I hope there's a more of an understanding maybe or like a more appreciation, I think, of the benefits of open source and maybe kind of to do away with some of those myths about open source always having to be uh, about like data privacy or open source, meaning you have to compromise on profit or compromise on other things. Like uh, there are ways, I guess, to incorporate open source and the way of incorporating the style of development and also incorporating those other fundamental parts of, of being a profitable company or uh, making sure data privacy exists. So I think there's hopefully changing that perspective on open source enables these new projects to, to flourish, I think would be fantastic for the industry. And hopefully you'll also tap into a whole new type of people that might want to start developing and start providing solutions to. So without that code base, without that database there, you, you really can't access these people that were otherwise focused on autonomous vehicle data sets or autonomous vehicle code or machine learning code. And so that's probably the other, the other major benefit and hopefully shift that we start seeing. Well, thank you very much to both Guy and Tam for being on today's show. How could you not want to root for these open source projects to be successful? I mean, I am 
loving what they're doing, as well as a lot of the other open source activity I'm hearing from out there. I am excited to see this be a growing part of the future of agriculture. I'm going to include links in the show notes for the OWL GitHub, as well as the Weed AI website and their Twitter account so you can follow along. Um, I'll also include a link to a cool video of this technology in action. So great stuff here, and I hope you're as inspired by these stories of open source ag tech as I am. Before we close out today, I do want to give a quick plug. I'm hosting an ag tech investor roundtable in a couple of weeks. That's Tuesday, November 9th, 2021. Joining me will be some former podcast guests who are ag tech investors, including Francisco Hardim, Sarah Nolette, Mark Kahn, and Jeanette Barnard. I'm super excited for this. It's happening live and attendees will get the chance to interact and ask questions as well. It's open only to members of the FOA community, but you can sign up for that for as little as $5 a month and cancel it anytime if you really want to. Uh, sign up and get all the details over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I never take it for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.